everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Mark Guy Show. Uh, thank you for joining me. I know it's been a couple months here now s- since I've last done an episode, but as always, so much to talk about. I think I do have some more free time now, so I should be able to put these out more regularly. I'd love to be on at least a once a week basis. I think that's that's very doable. But this episode here, I've got a few things I, I wanted to talk about that came up over this Memorial Day weekend. I did want to talk about the Roseanne situation. I know every other commentator, person with a podcast or anything on earth is talking about the Roseanne situation, but hopefully I've got something unique, something interesting to add to that discussion. Also a couple other things, something that a couple, I, I wouldn't say famous people on Twitter said, but that I responded to or that I thought sparked uh, a good discussion topic on this show. So I'll get into that. And if I have enough time, I'll talk a little bit about the Italian political situation right now, but I'm not sure if I'm going to have the time to get to that. So first, the Roseanne situation. Roseanne tweeted out something about uh, Valerie Jarrett, who was a pretty prominent Obama aide. And she said that she, uh, she was a product of the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes. And, and I guess Valerie Jarrett is half half Iranian, half black, and obviously, you know, using anything relating to apes to somebody who's who's part black is going to get you into a lot of hot water and within I believe less than 12 hours of her tweeting that out, it was it was in the middle of the night uh, on I want to say like like early Tuesday morning and then by Tuesday afternoon, her show was canceled and her show had come out uh, I don't remember when exactly it ended, but the first season of the reboot was on now. It was very popular. I know that the the opening couple episodes got extremely high ratings. I think it was still doing quite well. And I was watching it regularly. I, I liked the show. It's, it's original iteration. I watched the reruns qu- quite a bit when I was a kid too. And uh, I thought it was, it was pretty good. There, there wasn't a lot of politics in the show. You know, it, that's what drew the headlines initially. And there was some discussion in the, definitely in the opening episode, possibly in the second episode too, where they had a storyline where Roseanne was a Trump supporter and saying why she was a Trump supporter. And then her sister, Jackie was a Hillary supporter, like a, you know, a very stereotypical Hillary supporter. Roseanne was a, was a stereotypical Trump supporter. And, uh, they had some back and forths about it, but there really wasn't a ton of politics in the show. There was a, uh, there's an interracial marriage between Roseanne's son and a black woman. And they had a, a daughter together. So there was that element, you know, exploring race a little bit. I mean, they hadn't done much of that yet. I I bet they would have done more of that later on in the season. Uh, They also had the son of Darlene, Mark, who was exploring kind of dressing flamboyantly a little bit and how he would get made fun of for dressing in a more feminine fashion. So they're exploring some, some political type topics, I guess, some, some somewhat controversial topics. I wouldn't say necessarily political, but a lot like the original show did too. Uh, you know, things that were more relevant to that era, I guess. But I enjoyed it, and I was I was sad to see it canceled, but I definitely see why it happened. I think Roseanne came out, she, she realized what she did, she did blame it on Ambien, and then that created a whole, whole thing where people saying Ambien doesn't cause racism. And I think a pretty good rule of thumb now is never compare anybody to an ape you know, man or woman, regardless of color. Uh, I'll be honest. I didn't know. I didn't know Valerie Jarrett was black 
I thought I thought she was white. She and Roseanne actually don't look that dissimilar from each other if you if you look at it. So I wouldn't have known if this whole controversy hadn't come about that that she was black. But I think comparing anybody regardless of color to an ape it makes it that much worse if the person does have African ancestry because of the you know the history of of people using that as a as a pejorative. But I think what was surprising about this was how quickly ABC reacted to cancel the show. Like there wasn't even, there wasn't even discussion about possibly removing Roseanne. I guess it's, it's very difficult to be like removing Bill Cosby from the Cosby show. Like how could you possibly move or remove the title character from the show and still have the show continue to go on. But I mean, to make that decision, something happens at 3 AM and to make it by 1 p.m. the next morning or whatever the the exact timeline was was pretty surprising that they that they did it that quickly and I think people brought up some some reasonable things like that that ABC employs Keith Olbermann who has been just a like the things he said about about Donald Trump are are hysterical not in the in the funny sense but like he sounds like an absolute crazy person the things that he's throwing out, calling Trump continually a Nazi and, you know, just dropping 15 F-bombs in one tweet at Trump. He was really over the line, I think, during the whole thing. It made him look look bad more so than anything else. Uh, so, you know, for them to, to tolerate some people being on their network but then acting so quickly in the Roseanne situation I thought was a little bit surprising. But ABC, it's a, it's a private company, and, and they can make the decision if – if they want to risk whatever number, you know, whatever million, millions of followers or millions of watchers they were getting on the Roseanne show uh, versus being able to act quickly and not have any sort of backlash from the people who really took offense to her comments, uh, they would they would weigh the risk and reward there. And they obviously thought that the 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 risk was too high to keep the show going on. And I do feel bad for the for the rest of the cast for you know, John Goodman and, and Sarah Gilbert and Laurie Metcalf and, and all of them who, because of one late night tweet session by Roseanne, now they're all out of a job. So it was too bad. I, I was sad to see the show go. I do think people need to be prepared if they're going to be on Twitter and they're going to be making any any sort of controversial comments when you are in the in the public eye like that. There's going to be there, there's always the risk of huge backlash. And Roseanne being the face of a show, I mean, probably should have looked at maybe either deactivating her Twitter, deactivating social media, or having somebody else run it and just kind of have promotional stuff going through there, like retweeting things about the show or uh, having Roseanne just respond to specific things and have it be very milk toast. But she didn't do that, and this just continues to get people into trouble. So I think... The two biggest things to take away from this are when you are in that type of situation and you are in the public eye where and you do have a lot of people depending on you, in, in this case, everybody who is employed at the show, uh, what Roseanne does influences all their lives, then consider deactivating social media or making it as bland as possible. And also, no more comments about females' appearances or comparing people to apes. I think that's a... Maybe that takes some jokes away. I mean, I don't think that I don't think the joke Roseanne told was was a good one or, you know, was worth stirring up controversy. But 
I think you can you can do those things and avoid having this sort of thing happen to you. Uh, and I think it shows the the power of what can happen to you once public opinion goes a certain way. And I'm not trying to excuse at all what what Roseanne said, even though she she did come out and I know they leaked some some tweets between her and her son where she she said that she didn't know Valerie Jarrett was black. Uh, she she said the same thing publicly after the fact. Who knows if that's true? And we we really don't know. Uh, but I think it was it was more dumb than malicious but she's she's paying the consequences at first she came out and she apologized and she was very contrite she seems to now have uh gotten support behind her and seems to have uh have been emboldened by that a little bit and maybe we'll fight a little bit more but i don't really know what there is for her to do this is not a first amendment case or anything whatsoever you know you don't have the right to say whatever you want uh and have your employer still employ you. Your employer can choose, this is not good for our brand, we we no longer want to employ you, you're gone. And that's what they decided to do. So there's no sort of freedom of speech or anything here. I guess the argument you could make is that there is some sort of precedent that, uh, that we're going to be far more punishing, I guess, of any speech that, that particular portions of the populace really find offensive, which... Some people find a good thing. Some people find a bad thing. I, I think it is a, a slippery slope and can be dangerous, but I don't have a huge problem with, with what happened in this situation. I guess, like I said before, what I was most surprised about was just the swiftness of the response by ABC. I guess I don't really have a whole lot else to, to talk about with that. There was one funny thing I did I did want to I did want to point out. Uh, Bill Mitchell, who's on Twitter, he's at Mitchell... V-I-I, so like Mitchell the seventh in Roman numerals, and he's this very pro-Trump guy. I think he hosts a, a radio show or an, an internet show, and he's just this extremely pro-Trump guy that always comes up in my timeline. I don't I don't believe I, I follow him, but he does get retweeted by a lot of Trump supporters. But he came out and he was defending, he was trying to defend what Roseanne said by talking about the, the Planet of the Apes movie and saying that the apes were superior to the humans, so that really what Roseanne was trying to say was that uh, that that this woman is superior to humans because the, in the Planet of the Apes, the apes were superior to the humans. Uh, I don't know much about the Planet of the Apes storyline, uh, but just going off of, of what he said, and I, I termed that a, a galaxy brain take. I mean, galaxy brain, if you've seen that meme, they'll go down... And it starts with just like a, a blank brain and then a brain showing like some activity in the brain and then a brain showing quite a bit of uh, activity. And then the galaxy brain is like the brain and just light flashing out of every side of the brain. And usually it's some sort of crazy take that's uh, just it's it's making fun of it basically by saying you know they're you're doing mental gymnastics and and that's exactly what what bill mitchell was was trying to do here and then he also posted something showing valerie jarrett side by side with i guess one of the characters from planet of the apes so i mean i think i did see a lot of condemning of that and i think conservatives need to be very careful about these about these people who they're aligning themselves with and uh I just I I don't get why that would be your response to the situation like trying to defend 
what Roseanne said. I mean, obviously she didn't mean Planet of the Apes in a positive way. This is somebody, this is an Obama aide who she was extremely critical of. Uh, she's critical of, of Obama's uh, alleged ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's why she, she did Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes, had a child, equals Valerie Jarrett. That was her her tweet. So conservatives need to be very careful about some of the people on the, the fringes of their movement. And I think we, we know this already. This That's been talked about to death, but this is just another example of that. Speaking of conservatives, I did have another kind of related thing where th- this was somebody not nearly as, as popular as Bill Mitchell on Twitter, but I thought this was a, a decent thing to talk about on the show because I do see this this criticism lobbed at libertarianism quite a bit that, uh, well, we don't even know what it means. You know, what exactly is libertarianism? You ask different people, you get different answers as to what exactly is libertarianism. What's true libertarianism? And yeah, there's definitely a lot of infighting within libertarianism too about what is true libertarianism. Uh, I'm not going to argue that whatsoever, but this woman, her, her name is Stephanie Nicholas. She's a Canadian. I think she's got about 15,000 Twitter followers or so. I'm not sure what outlet she works for, but, uh, she's a, she's a, she's a conservative. She calls herself a, a conservative, uh, kind of hawkish foreign policy wise, kind of, I guess what you would expect a conservative to be. But she was lobbying this at libertarians. Like she said something critical of libertarianism. People asked her to to expand on it and say, why is she critical of it? And one of her tweets was, uh, libertarians can't agree on what it is. I know what you call libertarianism. That doesn't mean the next five libertarians I speak to won't be everything from religious constitutional conservatives to anarcho-capitalists to social liberals who don't want to pay taxes. She has said another one. What is libertarianism to you? This is my problem. Libertarianism is usually just conservatism, and then the distinctive version is actually anarcho-capitalism, which is utopian nonsense. So, like I said, I'm not disagreeing that there's not one uh, one definition of libertarianism, and that there isn't a lot of infighting between libertarians about what the definition of that is. You know, I do have my own definition, but I accept other people are going to have their own definitions too. And of course, I think my definition is better than theirs. But for a conservative to be saying, oh, well, we can, we can throw libertarianism out. I can criticize it. I can, I can say it's not realistic because it's imprecise and undefinable. I mean, it's just laughable for a conservative to be saying that. Think about how can you define a conservative today? And how does that compare? How does a conservative today compare to what a conservative thought 50 years ago or 100 years ago? I guess you wouldn't have called people libertarians 100 years ago, but the people who were, who you, going back in time as a person today, if you went back in time 100 years ago, there would be the the classical liberal types that you would identify as being, you know, libertarian types. You knew that if you took those people out of 100 years ago, put them in the modern day, they would align themselves with the libertarians of today. And what they believed then is pretty similar to what libertarians believe today. But conservatism? I mean, conservatism of 100 years ago? What what principles exactly is conservatism drawing from? And how can you how can you compare that today to what it was like 100 years ago? I mean, let alone 50 years ago or or 20 years ago. And look at what look at what Trump has done. Look at what you have. Uh, you have the alt right now emerging. I know conservatives are trying to distance themselves from that, but they identify as conservative too. 
the the Trump populace, they identify themselves as conservatives. There are some small government types who identify themselves as conservatives. I mean, there's a there's a much larger range of people who identify as conservatives and who call themselves conservatives today than there are libertarians. So I think this is just a, a laughable criticism and you're going to have that with with any political ideology and there's going to be infighting always as to as to, you know, who is the the pure uh, the pure person espousing this political philosophy. There's never a hundred percent agreement. So you can use that as a as a criticism of of any ideology. And I think there's a lot less dissent among libertarians than there are among conservatives. Because I mean, really, one of my biggest criticisms of quote unquote conservatism, why I won't why I wouldn't never call myself a conservative, is because I don't think that they have particular principles in mind that they draw off of. You know, they'll they'll say some things that they believe in that they believe in traditional social institutions, you know, things like uh things like the the family, uh the the nuclear family uh and particular like I said social institutions. It's even hard for me to try to espouse what they would say, but think about what conservatives were in the, in the days when monarchy still dominated conservatives were those who believed you know monarchy was best this is a traditional social institution uh, this is what this is what this is a part of our society that we that we need to maintain um, you could have the same thing with anything throughout history so right now yeah a conservative maybe could define themselves as as wanting to conserve the the nuclear family they would probably say something about uh about free markets uh not all of them would though not all the people who identify them as or who identify themselves as conservatives they would say particular things but you could never apply that in a historical context and there's still such a wide range of what people consider traditional social institutions that they that they would like to conserve uh they they probably would point to property rights at, at most points in history, but even conservatives are are pretty, you know, they can be pretty wide ranging on their approach to to property rights, their approach to authority, their approach to hierarchy. And it really depends on the time that they live in. And I'm not saying that libertarians or people who you know we could kind of call libertarians wouldn't change from time to time based on the the time that they're living in. But I just think there's a far smaller range within libertarianism than there is within conservatism. So that's just a, a really poorly thought out criticism of libertarianism. And I think she got a lot of pushback on it for that reason, rightfully so. And I didn't see her explore the topic again. It was pretty late at night. I didn't see her explore the topic again the next day. And probably rightfully so, because she was really digging herself a hole. Another thing I wanted to talk about also was from one remark on Twitter. This one definitely got a lot more a lot more attention, so you may have seen this one out there, but it was from Charlie Kirk, who younger guy, he's been I mean he calls himself kind of like a liberty minded guy. I know he's with uh, I believe Turning Point USA and he's been very pro Trump. He's he's said a lot of things pro Trump. I mean he does he does talk a lot about free markets and all, his stuff isn't all bad but a, a lot of it is just trump kind of propaganda and then this the, this what i'm talking about wasn't really trump propaganda but it was really 
American foreign policy propaganda. So he said this on Memorial Day. America is the kindest, most gentle, benevolent superpower ever to exist. No other country in the history of the world consistently sends their own soldiers to die for the freedom of others. The world is a much better place thanks to America and those who died protecting us. Now, I guess it's it's hard to compare the U.S. necessarily in the 20th century and the 21st century to prior world superpowers just because we have just this this weaponry and this technology that those prior those prior world superpowers couldn't have imagined so who knows what the roman empire would have done with modern day military technology maybe they would have been far more destructive than they were but you look at the you look at the instability that we've caused in the middle east you look at we are the only country that has ever dropped atomic bombs on other humans of course you know there's been testing done by by many different countries, uh, and yeah, you just look at the recent track record. You look at you go look at what we did in Vietnam, us going there. Um, really, in in my lifetime, the epicenter has been the Middle East and and what we've done there. But I think this is just a kind of cartoonish look at history, and it ignores how the U.S. going into World War I changed the dynamics of that war, ended up resulting in Germany getting punished probably far more harshly than it would have if the United States had never gotten involved in World War I, and then if Germany hadn't been so so harshly punished by sanctions and everything after World War I, would Hitler have had the environment to rise to power and then result in everything that, that happened that led up to, to World War II? Um, and then everything after that like i like i talked about vietnam i mean you can have a lot of criticism of the the korean war we're still dealing with the aftermath of that to this day with with north korea versus south korea uh we still have troops in that part of the world we still have troops in japan from world war ii uh we still have troops all throughout europe we have troops in germany all over eastern europe uh, we're still we still have kind of contentious relations with Russia, the whole Cold War period. Uh, so you can point at a lot of things in really the the empire period of American history because America was not the superpower of the world until the 20th century and did not start to really exert itself on the world stage until the 20th century. So that's really the the relevant time period here. But I think this is just a, a cartoonish look at history. And the idea that, that we consistently send our soldiers to die for the freedom of others. And maybe that's, the, that's what the government says is happening. That's what the military says is happening. That's the intention of the war or of the, of the many wars that, that we've sent people to, to go die for. But is that the actual result of the war? Are they actually dying for the freedom of others? I don't, I don't think so certainly not in recent history they're they're going to to die to destabilize a region and in almost every instance cause worse people worse groups to rise up to power than were in power prior to us sending them over there and you can point to to what we did in libya i mean obviously what we did in iraq removing saddam hussein who obviously was a bad guy but look at what happened after he was removed uh, and this whole idea that we can go and we can impose American values, can impose democracy on parts of the world that have never had democracy and that just don't have the same values as us. I'm not saying that that's, 
inherently a bad thing that they have different values from us, but to try to impose our values on them is obviously a losing proposition. And that's why it's failed time and time again. So I think he, he got a lot of backlash on this. I see what I'm looking at here. There were 19,000 replies to it, mostly negative, not, not all negative, of course, because I think a lot of people still do believe in this this kind of fairy tale version of American foreign policy and of American involvement with the rest of the world. I think more and more people are waking up thanks to the internet. Finding the real information on this is is a lot easier than it was in the past. You no longer have to just rely on what the Pentagon tells you or what politicians tell you or what the two television networks and the few major newspapers are telling you. You, know, you now can go and there are people on the ground, people who aren't beholden to other interests that are out there actually telling what's going on and, and telling the real side effects of these wars. But I think there still is a big portion of, and it's, it's, it's definitely, especially the right wing, you know, the left wing can fall into this a little bit, especially when they have one of their own guys or girls in power. Uh, but the right wing is especially susceptible to this. Just thinking that, yeah, how could anybody possibly dislike or hate the United States of America? We we send our people to go die for the freedom of others. That's the the exact quote of what of what Charlie Kirk uh, said. How could people possibly hate us? It's obvious because they just they they despise freedom or they uh, they hate us because they're jealous or some sort of asinine uh, some sort of asinine reason like that. But no, people see, people who live in an area, they see the results of given actions. You know, even if they're the, the least educated people out there, they see there was this military action by the United States. This is what happened after it. So they can, they can deduce cause and effect just fine. They may not know what's happening in the rest of the world. They may not know a single thing about the American political system. They may not, they may not know a single thing about the United States. But they can see cause and effect right in front of their own faces. They can see when a relative of theirs dies, when a parent of theirs dies, or a, a child of theirs dies due to a, a drone strike, or you know, due to a, a tactical strike that that didn't hit its intended target. They can see that, and of course, they're going to direct their hatred then at the country that they that they think caused it, that that did cause it. So. Charlie Kirk, I would stop peddling this kind of this fairy tale version of American foreign policy. You say some good things about about free markets, uh, and you have this platform. I I know he he kind of goes on and does these these sermon type messages on seemingly a, a daily basis, and some of them are okay. Some of them are are a little annoying. You know the the pro Trump ones obviously are are very annoying, but really rethink your policy here and and look beyond look beyond the intentions just like you would talk about uh the the american social welfare state you would say yeah the intentions of the social welfare state have been a b and c but what have been the actual results that's how we have to judge the american social welfare state not on what the government said it was going to do or on what politicians said it was going to do but on what actually happened and we have to do the same thing with foreign policy uh I'm probably not going to go into the Italian stuff yet. Uh, the markets, the markets did rally. I think 
the the causes of concern in Italy were a little less than they were the prior day. That I, I did look at the the Italian two year bonds. They went up dramatically. Like within within a week, they were at 0.2 percent, and they were up like almost to three percent. They were up, I think, at like 2.4 or 2.5 percent or something like that. I mean, especially in in today's bond environment, that's a huge move. Uh, so there were obviously big big, at least short-term, concerns about what was happening with the political situation in Italy, uh, fears of populism. I, I do want to get into a long conversation here at some point about why the elites seem to draw this line between democracy and populism. Really, they're, those are those are two sides of the same cloth that Democracy, I guess, is when the people choose what the elites want them to choose, but it becomes populism when the people then choose what the elites don't want them to choose. Because really, what is populism? It's a political movement based on popular uprising in in some way. I guess, let me look up what the, what the dictionary definition of populism is, and let's see how distinctive that is from, uh, from democracy. So see, according to what comes up right away in Google, support for the concerns of ordinary people, the quality of appealing to or being aimed at ordinary people. Let's see what Wikipedia says. A political philosophy supporting the rights and power of the people in their struggle against a privileged elite. Uh, so that doesn't seem that distinctive from democracy. A democracy will pull that up to what, what does... Uh, Google and Wikipedia say about the definition of democracy, but democracy really is uh, where all people, or I guess, I mean, in some cases, most people are are able to vote, and to base people over a certain age uh, are able to vote, and it's decided by the majority how how things are going to, to progress. So what Google says is, a system of government by the whole population or all the eligible members of a state, typically through elected representatives, a state governed by a democracy, control of an organization or group by the majority of its members. Uh, Wikipedia, we'll do the same thing for democracy. A system of government in which the citizens exercise power directly or elect representatives from among themselves to form a governing body, such as a parliament. Democracy is sometimes referred to as rule of the majority. Democracy is a system of processing conflicts in which outcomes depend on what participants do, but no single force controls what occurs and its outcomes. So those don't see, seem very different. That populism, it talks about concern for ordinary people, uh, concerns for ordinary people, I guess, over the concerns of the privileged elite. Democracy, I think, tends to move in that direction when you have a one person, one vote type of system and it's essentially majority rule, then you're obviously going to have people closer to the bottom are going to be a majority compared to the people close to the top. So that's going to be the way that democracies tend to move. But this, I, I don't know, this, this distinction where once what they call a far right group gets into power in Europe, they call it populism and a crisis of democracy. It's no, I mean, look at look at what's within democracy. Look at what's inherent with democracy that's resulted in the populism. That should be the question. And I think that's the way that a lot of democracies will tend to move. They will tend to move to 
majority rule and in certain cases and and in Europe because they they have this system where you have a lot of political power in Brussels people are resentful of that of losing their national identity of losing the ability to govern themselves they see more and more of that power moving to Brussels moving toward toward the European Union that they get frustrated and vote for these anti-EU or Eurosceptic parties and they tend to be on the right uh, as the mainstream would call them far-right parties but that's part of democracy so I, I've got a big problem with with talking about democracy as being this this ideal this uh, this I guess I won't say perfect I guess most people that support democracy are going to say it's it's perfect but they're going to say that bar none really without even making an argument they're going to say that it's the best type of political system that we could possibly have like rule rule by the majority who could possibly who could possibly argue with ruling by the majority that's i mean that's usually the the level of discourse that's the way it's taught to americans in schools that's how it was taught to me but i think as you start to see what's happened recently you know you could look at the trump election in the united states that especially if you're extremely anti-trump you're going to call that uh democracy leading to poor outcomes now people will say oh well, trump didn't win the popular vote so it really wasn't democracy or the election was rigged in some way you know russia rigged the election but you're also talking about the way that the popular vote worked out was within the electoral college people would have voted differently if the electoral college didn't exist you know a lot of people who are in new york or california or states that really lean strongly one way or the other there's only a handful of true swing states you know, a lot of, I'm sure both Democrats and Republicans stayed home in my home state in North Dakota because you knew that Trump was going to win in a landslide. Or in New York and California, they weren't going to go out and vote for their candidate because they knew that Hillary Clinton would win in a landslide so that their vote really wasn't going to matter on the popular stage. But, I mean, anyways, that's that's really beside the point. But you can look at Trump as being an indictment of democracy. You can look at yeah, substantial percentage of the of the population supported him, but you have a huge percentage of the population that cannot stand him, that thinks he's the Antichrist, that thinks he's uh, he's another coming of of Adolf Hitler, and that seems like a pretty strong indictment of democracy when you can have whatever. I mean, generously speaking, forty percent of the population uh, electing somebody who wields a lot of power over the entire hundred percent despite 40% of the people absolutely despising that person. Now, I know the number of people actually voting is far... The percentage of Americans that actually voted for Trump is far less than 40% because a lot of people just don't go out and vote at all, but just using that for, for illustration purposes. But I just have a big problem with with the way that they draw this this big distinction between democracy and populism. And at what time... At, at what point does democracy become populism? I think it really is once the people start to uh, start to choose something that the elites don't like, uh, all of a sudden then it becomes populism. They start labeling it as populism. And populism has taken on this this very negative, uh, it, it really has this, this negative connotation now. And I think most of what populists want to do is pretty negative. So... I'm not in favor of, of populism by any means, but I just think it's it's a really weird distinction, and I'm seeing it more and more often every time there's any sort of 
uh, instability like this in Europe, I see that brought about. And I think, uh, I don't know, I think it's, it's skipping what the important part of that discussion would be is, well, what role did democracy play in these policies starting to come to the forefront? Because it's within this democracy that populism has been allowed to come about. That these these things that the elites don't like, that the elites don't agree with, have been allowed to to actually start to take effect. But I'll talk a little more about the actual specifics of Italy in another show. I don't really want to go much beyond. I'm, I'm already at almost 37 minutes here. I didn't really want to go much beyond a half hour. So maybe my next show I'll talk about it. We'll kind of see what happens with, with that whole situation here in the next week or so. So thank you for listening. <clears throat> I really appreciate it. This is always fun to do. Had some pretty fun topics today. Hopefully I'll have some some good things to come back with. I, I want to talk too about, <clears throat> I just read Brian Kaplan's new book, The Case Against Education. I know I've talked quite a bit about education on this this podcast. And I think he brings up a lot of a, a lot of great points in that book, and it coalesces very well with things that I've said in prior episodes. And of course, that title is intentionally provocative. He's not actually anti-education, but his conclusions that government subsidies for education are a poor investment, I think, are are very interesting topics. And maybe I can do a kind of extended review of that book on here. So, thank you for joining me. Appreciate it. Have a fantastic rest of your week. Can't believe we're already. Just about five months done with 2018. And I'll talk to you again soon.